Thanks for listening to Chicago's Morning Answer podcast sponsored by Signature Bank. Signature Bank takes pride in helping customers grow their business and provide unmatched banking expertise, custom financial solutions, and the industry's best technology. So whether you're a business looking for a deposit relationship or needs a ready source of financing, Signature Bank is the right bank for you. Call today at 773-467-5600 to hear how Signature Bank can help your business grow and thrive. Member FDIC, Equal Housing Lender. This is Chicago's Morning Answer with Dan Proft and Amy Jacobson on AM560, The Answer. Top of the morning, Dan and uh, just Dan. Uh, Amy will be back tomorrow from her uh, trip overseas, as I understand it. So uh, the big game yesterday, uh, the... uh, fight to win the hand of the fair maiden taylor 312-642-5600 turnkey.pro answer line 64636da turnkey.pro text line favorite commercials favorite meltdowns travis kelsey almost knocking andy reed over after uh, pacheco fumbled in the first quarter uh in the red zone um favorite uh, pregame messages uh, for example the big guy Mr. Ten Percent, President Biden, uh, fresh off of uh, his uh, uh, clearance by the special prosecutor in the classified documents case, if you can call what happened uh, on Thursday a victory, Thursday evening, his press conference, of course, that we discussed on Friday, uh, had uh, you know didn't do the uh, pregame. Uh, I mean, didn't do the uh, halftime interview during the Super Bowl. Didn't want to do that for all kinds of obvious reasons. But he did have a pregame message that he recorded fresh with uh, props. The uh, issue this uh, Super Bowl Sunday for the big guy, Mr. 10%, shrinkflation. The Super Bowl Sunday. If you're anything like me, you like to be surrounded by a snack or two while watching the big game. You know, when buying snacks for the game, you might have noticed one thing. Sports drinks bottles are smaller. A bag of chips has fewer chips, but they're still charging it just as much. And as an ice cream lover, what makes me the most angry is that ice cream cartons have actually shrunk in size, but not in price. I've had enough of what they call shrinkflation. It's a ripoff. Some companies are trying to pull a fast one by shrinking the products little by little and hoping you won't notice. Give me a break. The American public is tired of being played for suckers. I'm calling on companies to put a stop to this. Let's make sure businesses do the right thing now. You know, nothing makes him angrier than um, a uh, shrunken pint of ice cream. Um, angrier than Travis Kelsey after Pacheco fumbles, directing it at Andy Reid. Uh, that's the the message. That's the coming out of it. Pay no attention to what happened last week. I mean, the whole weekend, of course, was uh, damage c- control duty. All hands on deck. His campaign co-chairman, KJP. Uh, Jill, his uh, lovely wife, uh, and um, no, a raft of others we'll get to uh, in a second. But just on the game itself, I, I know this is going to, the uh, nature of the game will feed the uh, Taylor Swift psyop uh, NFL scripted conspiracy theorists, but uh, please don't indulge. Uh, you know, nobody forced um, Kyle Shanahan to go away from the run at the beginning of the second half. Um Play calling at the end, uh, missing the Spagnola blitzes. It's, it's, I, let's just let's just not go down 
that uh, rabbit hole. Um, some other uh, highlights, though, of the game. I, I thought Usher's halftime show was pretty good. Uh, I posted something about that, and people uh, did not agree with me. But um, yeah, I thought I thought. Uh, I mean, the guy can dance the fan the phone book. He's got some sort of catchy pop hits over the years. I thought there were some nice surprise collaborations with like Alicia Keys. Always fun to see Lil John. Um, and um, yeah. I thought the halftime show was uh, pretty, pretty good, except for that one wardrobe, uh, wardrobe malfunction that uh, uh, that uh, Usher had when he when his shirt came off. That that was about the only downside. Uh, favorite commercial? I'll just go through my lit, lit, litany here. Um, Christopher Walken, the Walken impersonators. I, for I think it was for some BMW electric car or something. But uh, anyway, just seeing Walken looking spry at eighty years old. Compare and contrast Christopher Walken to uh, Joe Biden. And um, uh, the most interesting spot was RFK Jr. deciding to spend $7 million bucks because I think that's what was the going rate for your 30-second spot for this year's Super Bowl, $7 million. Choosing uh, to, that moment to uh, offer that spend. Um, interesting. Interesting what he thinks, not just about uh, the stage and about the, can- the campaign writ large, but um, maybe trying to seize uh, the opportunity in this moment of some chaos and slinging in both directions with both major party candidates, nominees, to um, remind people that there's this alternative. And also, I think the nature of the spot was interesting, too, which it was hearkening back to, of course, the uh, 60s with JFK and his father and uh maybe a bit of nostalgia for some of the older viewers that were listening. I, not a bad spot. It was a sort of, you know, an analog spot in the digital world harkening back to the 60s. And, um, uh, I, I, you know, I'm not an RFK Jr. fan. I am not uh, uh, wowed by his statements of some of the obvious with regard to the pandemic and the drug companies. He makes some points on some issues, but he... I have not forgotten, at least, that he is still far left on a whole host of issues that are critically important, including energy independence. And he is a eco-supremacist goof when it comes to uh, the coming climate apocalypse, we're told. So but but separating all that, just the actual political politics of it, the choice to make to do that spot, the spot he presented, I thought... It's actually pretty shrewd. Mary Kay in uh, Western Springs, you're on Chicago's Morning Answer. Hey, good morning, Dan. The uh, Reese's Peanut Butter Cup, the new launch of the um, the caramel flavor um, ad, their um, upper right-hand corner, if you can go look up this ad, um, on the upper right-hand corner at the end, there is a grandma lady with white hair kissing an Asian man. <laughs> No, I missed that one. I missed that one. No, I missed that. Oh my God! You got to like, fit it in. I asked mm-hmm. my family. Pardon? Yeah, you got you got to fit that in. You got to you know make sure your spots check at least some of the uh, identitarian boxes, right? You need that biracial couple in there. Yeah, biracial grant grant. Well, was, biracial and by you know yeah and bi generational sure. Of course. By, yeah, for sure. And she was the cougar to beat all cougars. I'm like, that is bizarre. <laughs> um, so, 
Oh, Dan, it was hysterical. The whole thing was, there was so much going on, things flashing on the screen. Um, I didn't even stay up for the end. I went to bed and caught it. I, know, I won't tell you how it ends. Yeah. No, yeah. I, I know now. What a great game, though. Um, and Usher killed it, I thought. It, it reminded me of Michael Jackson back in yeah. well, whenever he performed. Yeah. I it thought was he was so good. Watch. Thanks for the call, Mary Kay. I thought it was good. I mean, it was like, you know, people, I don't know what people expect. Um, certainly it was better than some of the more recent ones like Weekend and Rihanna. Um, no, I liked it. Um, also, it was nice to see uh, some of the uh, stars in attendance. And, of course, I'm talking about Kim Fox. Did you see that? Kim Fox, Cook County State's Attorney. You remember her? Uh, she was in attendance. I think tickets were going for, I think, like, the lowest price ticket was, like, ten grand. Hmm. I wonder if uh, that dutiful Chicago press corps will ask uh, Kim Fox uh, who sponsored her for the Super Bowl. That's nice, though. I mean, it's it's great that uh, the faces of our city, the faces of Chicago, uh, they get invited to all the big events. It reminds us that we're still a big th- a deal. We're a we're a player. BLM Brandon gets invited to the Grammys. Was unable to attend. He he does have a black wife and three black kids at home. He's trying to raise. Uh, Kim Fox uh, posting about the Usher Bowl and she's all decked out in her Super Bowl regalia. I won't bother her with what's going on back at the ranch here in Chicago. That's really not her concern. You know, once you're not running again, you can really stick it in the eye of people who elected you twice. Remind them just how how big a suckers they are, I guess. Best way I can put it. Yeah, Kim Fox at the Super Bowl. On the flip side of that, what was nice to see is Holden Armenta. Did you see that he was at the bowl, at the game? That uh, the kid that uh, got... Uh, slimed, uh, libeled, and there's a suit pending now, by the uh, deadspin identitarian columnist, the, that uh, nine-year-old kid who had the headdress and the, his face you know, painted black and red, Chiefs colors. He was at the Super Bowl. Uh, that was cool to see. Um, and by the way, speaking of Usher, too, uh, married, got married again after the Super Bowl. Um, and, uh, again, I, I don't know why I did it because I've said, I don't know how many times on this show, uh, it's tough way. It's tough to bet against Pat Mahomes, I should say, you know, when you're actually engaged in, um, wagering tough to bet against Pat Mahomes and he proved against last night, but uh, I was with the 49ers anyway. I, I just, I just couldn't bring myself. I, I thought they were the better team, but I also just can't bring myself to be part of the uh, the Swifty Mafia. Uh, however, the good news is the uh, money I lost on the Super Bowl, I made up because I had Team Rough in the Puppy Bowl. And uh, so I cleaned up with Team Rough, even though Pat Mahomes has got my money. Well, via Vegas, he's got my money or via the Hard Rock in Hollywood, Florida. Uh, either way. You're listening to Chicago's Morning Answer with Dan Proft and Amy Jacobson on AM560, The Answer. 
Hey, business owners, is your business and money in good hands? Does your bank invest in your success? Hi, Mike Gallagher here, letting you know that when you need a relationship bank, Signature Bank makes commercial banking personal. I love these guys. Not only do they have expansive industry experience, a strong financial track record, but they're also highly capitalized for strategic growth. That's so important. That's why Signature Bank is my bank. They know what it means to grow a business by designing solutions that are right for you and only you. These are real people. They're ready to help. So reach out to my friends at Signature Bank. Make the call today, 773-467-5630, 773-467-5630, or visit them online at SignatureBank.Bank. That's SignatureBank.Bank. Your business could be Signature Bank's next success story. Go online, SignatureBank.Bank, member FDIC, Equal housing lender. Signature Bank. Only the biggest stories. Only the biggest guests. And only the biggest opinions. This is AM560, The Answer. Top of the morning, Dan and Amy. But uh, it's just Dan today. No Amy. She's back tomorrow from her uh, overseas adventure. Uh, We were talking a little bit about about the Super Bowl. I'm just thinking through more of the commercials um, what didn't work and what did work, at least for me. And we'll take your calls on it, but I do want to get to the Biden damage control weekend. 312-642-5600, turnkey.pro answer line. The um, Ben Affleck, J-Lo, Matt Damon, Tom Brady, Dunkin' Donuts ad, painful. Awful. The flip side, the uh, Donald Faison, uh, Zach Braff, Jason Momoa commercial for uh, T-Mobile. Uh, with the uh, oh, uh, oh, what a feeling from Flashdance, and then it ends with Jennifer Beals. That was cool. I mean, I always liked Braff and Faison because they were so good together in Scrubs. Um, but that was a good spot. Well, I'm just trying to think it through. So we got RFK Jr. That was interesting from a political perspective. Uh, you got that that uh, that uh, Braff, Faison, Momoa spot. Beals, I guess, you got to include her too. And then. Um, and then the walking spot. Those are some of my my key takeaways on the much debated Super Bowl commercials topic. All right. Anyway, on to more important things. By the way, again, great to see Kim Fox out at the big game. State's attorney, Cook County State's attorney, Kim Fox, because, I mean, she's basically got that office running on autopilot. So it's nice to see her get some time away during the winter. Uh, all hands on deck. Full Biden damage control duty this weekend, starting on Friday with, of course, White House spokeswoman Karine Jean-Pierre responding to uh, one of the reporters that Biden got short with on Thursday evening during his press conference. That would be, of course, Peter Ducey. This was their exchange. Uh, So who's helping this guy? Since, as Robert Hur, the special prosecutor in the classified docs case, said, yeah, basically he's an elderly man, not fit to stand trial. But, uh, of course, that uh, I reserve comment on whether or not he's fit to run a country. Uh, so who so if he's not up to the task, then, you know, who else is helping him along? Listen, I have been privileged and proud. No, that's not it. Oh, hold on, hold on. We'll get to we'll get to you, Madam Vice President. Hold on. If the special counsel says President Biden's got significant limitations on his memory, then who is helping him run the country? 
The President of the United States runs the country. The Commander-in-Chief runs the country. How can he be trusted with the nuclear codes if, I, I get that you're saying that uh, nobody in the building would say that he's got an issue with his memory, but just the little part of what we get to see, he's made mistake after mistake after mistake after mistake on camera this week. So I want to be very clear here. Um, the reality is that report, that part of the report, does not live in reality. It just doesn't. So the special counsel it is, is lying it, it about is, the president's it is, memory. It is. It was gratuitous. You heard from my. You heard from Ian Sams, my colleague. Uh, it is unacceptable, and it does not live in reality. That is just the facts. And and look, it is a close case. That is what the special counsel said. And. What matters is here is that the president in the last three years has delivered on the economy, has delivered on health care, has turned this country around after the last president left us with an economy that was in a tailspin. That's what we were dealing with. That's what we were dealing with. If you think about the world leaders. Yeah, let's think about them. Um, doesn't live in reality. And then this was this was the pivot ham handed as it was by all of the mouthpieces for the administration. Let's talk about all that he's done. I know what he does remember. He remembers how to create infrastructure jobs. I mean, it's just so, 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 so schlocky. Uh, oh, okay. Let me get that hook out of my mouth. But anyway, yeah, he doesn't live in reality. That report does not live in reality. Not the reality KJP knows. Not the reality that um, a dutiful wife Jill knows. I know that. Not the reality that uh, professional fluffer Kamala Harris knows Gavin Newsom a lot of professional fluffers around this administration it's funny because um, upwards of 80% of Americans also don't live in reality according to KJP because they have serious questions about the big guy's mental fitness for the big job 312-642-5600 turnkey.proanswer line Six four six three six D A Turnkey Pro text line. I also another aspect of the damage control, if you caught any of it, was sort of the finger wagging in the direction of Special Counsel Robert Hur. You're you're not supposed to say these things out loud. I mean, everybody who's paid any attention knows this. You, you know, it's manifested when Biden is wandering out in the public, but you're not supposed to say it. It's just an odd criticism. It's basically, yes, it's, I mean, there was a sort of, it's not true, he's, look at all he's accomplished kind of thing. Pretty weak tea. But then there's the, you know, how dare you say that? Sort of what uh, Joe Biden himself said, how dare he say that I didn't remember the date of my son's death, and so on and so forth. How dare you? You're not supposed to say out loud what is observably true. Listen. I have been privileged and proud to serve as Vice President of the United States with Joe Biden as President of the United States. And what I saw of that report last night, I believe is, as a former prosecutor, um, the comments that were made by that prosecutor, gratuitous, inaccurate, and inappropriate. Gratuitous, inaccurate, and inappropriate. Um, well, what's in 
what's inaccurate? And then they, they'll give you the whole spiel about I'm around this guy and he is a dizzing intellect who's at the top of his game. You know, the over the top uh, propaganda, basically. And then the other piece of it is how dare you, sir? Inappropriate uh, and gratuitous. Well, is it really? I mean, first of all, it's not inappropriate, really, for him to comment on the case to cut to to provide this rationale for for no for for the first reason that Robert Hur has to protect his own backside when he comes to this decision not to charge. He has to have an explanation. And by the way, the um, special prosecutor, uh, the directive to the federal regulations that are instructive to a special prosecutor shall provide the attorney general with a confidential report explaining the prosecution or declination decisions reached. You have to, you can't just give a decision, you have to give a why. And what was his why, hers why? It was, eh, a doddering old man that a jury would find particularly sympathetic and probably couldn't get a conviction. That was basically it. So there's his rationale. And for those that are trying to uh, scapegoat Robert Herb, that's a, some Republican operative. I, I, some, something is rotten in the state of Denmark. Uh, this is a political point scoring. Like Robert Herb is some you know, Republican flack. Um, Andrew Weissman, for example, the uh, point person for Mueller during the Russian collusion investigation, that special prosecution operation. Uh, the Wall Street Journal reminds us Weissman's report, well, Mueller's report, but it was pretty clear that um, Mueller what didn't, wasn't mentally fit for that job either. We've been to this place before. Uh, the evidence we obtained about the president's actions, this is on Trump, Russian collusion, the evidence we obtained about uh, the president's actions and intents presents difficult issues that prevent us from conclusively determining that no criminal conduct occurred. Of a backhanded way to say we got nothing. Accordingly, while this report does not conclude the president committed a crime, it also does not exonerate him. So all of that is to say what? Because Weissman is running around saying you either put up or shut up. You either charge him or you decline to charge him, but you don't give any context. In fact, you do give context. You do give a rationale. And in fact, Andrew Weissman himself gave a rationale. But, right, hypocrisy is the tribute that uh, vice pays to virtue in this town that we're talking about, this toddling town called D.C. All right, so back to Kamala Harris. So that's the one aspect of it. Gratuitous, you're not supposed to say observably things, observably true things out loud. And then there's the, this guy is, got complete control of these situations, and in every crisis moment you wouldn't believe how he performs the handle he has on things the insight and of course everything is worked out swimmingly during this administration you know you know perhaps minus the afghanistan withdrawal and a few other things anyway let me take you back to october 7th let's walk down memory lane with vice president reparation h october 7th Israel experienced a horrific attack, and I will tell you, we got the calls, the president and myself, in the hours 
after that occurred. It was an intense moment for the Commander-in-Chief of the United States of America, and I was in almost every meeting with the President in the hours and days that followed. Countless hours with the Secretary of Defense, the Secretary of State, the heads of our intelligence community, and the President was in front of and on top of it all, asking questions and requiring that America's military and intelligence community and diplomatic community would figure out and know how many people were dead, how many are Americans, how many hostages? Is the situation stable? He was in front of it all, coordinating and directing leaders who are in charge of America's national security, not to mention our allies around the globe. For days, and up until now, months. So the way that the President's demeanor in that report was characterized could not be more wrong on the facts and clearly politically motivated, gratuitous. And so I will say that when it comes to the role and responsibility of a prosecutor in a situation like that, we should expect that there would be a higher level of integrity than what we saw. Thank you. Politically motivated, lack of integrity, gratuitous. He is a uh, Trump MAGA cultist. Uh, I smell a political rat, said uh, a very own Governor Jellybelly. It was extremely unfair for a former President Trump appointee originally to the DOJ to offer his opinions about the mental acuity or age of the President of the United States. No, of course. So it's unfair for... uh, the American voter to do so as well, then, Jelly Belly? Who gets to comment on it? The only thing that surprised me about the uh, damage control duty this weekend is that you didn't have one of the president's doctors trotted out there to say, yeah, you know, he's 80 years old, he has some spells like anybody does, you, you forget a name, you forget a place. But um, in terms of his overall mental fitness, his ability to process information and make cogent decisions. Um, He is perfectly up to the job. I was waiting for that clean bill of health letter or statement or representative from the president's medical team to uh, exonerate him, because that's the exoneration he actually needs, isn't it? It has very little to do with the classified documents case and much more to do with the fact that, as I said, 80 percent of the American public is no longer going to not believe their lying eyes, which is what uh, all these flacks on damage control duty are hoping they can achieve. If you thought uh, Kamala Harris was obsequious, well, you were right, but uh, get a load of Mayorkas, little Ellie Mayorkas. Uh, meet the press <laughs> on damage control duty for the big guy. Listen to this. The most difficult part about a meeting with President Biden is preparing for it because he is sharp, <laughs> intensely probing and detail oriented and focused. Uh, yeah. 
Man, the most difficult part. He's just such a towering intellect. That's the reputation Joe Biden's always had in D.C. Towering intellect, so up on the details. Creative, asymmetrical thinker. Incubator of policy, deep policy thoughts. You have philosopher king. <laughs> Joe Biden has never fit any of these descriptions at any time in his life. But now after the he's not fit to stand trial report, he we're supposed to believe that he does. Yeah. The toughest part of preparing for a meeting with Joe Biden is getting him to show up to the right place, I suspect. Scott in Aurora, you're on Chicago's Morning Answer. Hey, I just wanted to say maybe Kamala Harris is actually right. Maybe we the people are wrong. Uh, she, she, maybe Joe Biden really is the in charge of the country, and that's why it's a complete dumpster fire. <laughs> Thanks, Scott. Uh, Bill, Northwest Side. Hi, Dan. Yeah, uh, uh, Peter Ducey needs to ask KJP. Why did Merrick Garland appoint a special prosecutor that would sabotage the president? Like, why did he do that? Right. Right. Yeah. Thanks for the call, Bill. Yeah, exactly. What What is going Is Merrick Garland a uh, uh, enemy inside the perimeter? He's appointing these these awful MAGA cultists to investigate the president. It's funny um, if you I didn't hear a lot of caterwauling about Robert Hur throughout this very um, below-the-fold process. I mean, uh, did anybody even remember there was a special prosecutor, special prosecution going on, a special look into by his handling classified documents? I remember a couple months ago talking to Brett Baer about it before the first of the year. Like, uh, has anybody heard from Robert Hur? Is, is he still with us? Uh, has he abdicated somewhere? We heard nothing about this. And we find out that, Biden willingly and all this. Oh, I, we volunteered for this. And I did a five hours worth of uh, Q&A with her. And so it's funny. You didn't complain about it at the time. You're complaining about it now. So it wasn't unfair at the time, but it's unfair now because of the conclusions he drew. Hmm. Another uh, gentleman on. Damage control duty. And boy, the profile on some of these Biden flacks. Mitch Landrew, of course, uh, was the uh, mayor of New Orleans. Remember, his sister Mary was the governor during Katrina. Those two did a bang up job, really turning New Orleans around. That's a hell of a city. Highest murder cap murder per capita rate in the country, New Orleans. But Mitch Landrew is here as a Biden's campaign co-chairman to lecture us about Biden's health. You know, let me tell you what Biden remembers, this spin. I mean, I just, it is just so clunky. But okay, you, you do you, Mitch. You know what Joe Biden remembers? He remembers how to build 46,000 infrastructure projects. He remembers how to build one of the strongest economies in the world. He uh -huh. remembers how to make sure that the unemployment rate stays let's, as low as it has for 50 years and to create 800,000 jobs. And that is why, let me just finish, that is why the president says, watch me. And the president has demonstrated an incredible amount of accomplishment in a few short years that outpaced anything that Donald Trump has ever what? done, including creating 15 million jobs. I thought it was 800,000 jobs, not 15 million. It doesn't matter. I get it. It doesn't really matter. Um, yeah. Watch me. Right, Mitch. 
again, here's the problem. It's just a political problem. You can say the same thing that KJP said. It is not reality-based. Fine. Whatever. Okay. 80% of the public has watched him, and they have serious questions about his mental fitness for the job. Forgetting all the policy discussions and everything else. Mental fitness. Sort of a basic threshold clearer that if you can't clear it, you're not going to be in the Oval Office. Steve and Roselle. Yeah, I'd like to say uh, good morning, guys. Uh, Humpty Dumpty had a great fall, and all the king's horses and all the king's men couldn't put Humpty back together again. They're trying. Thanks for the call, Steve. Uh, Mac and the 219. Yeah, hey, if, uh, if Joe's so sharp, why wasn't he on the morning show? And if these people are touting his praises, you know what they sound like? They sound like the guy who says 20 times in a row, I love my wife. And then you find out three days later, he's either banging the babysitter or the neighbor. <laughs> okay, Mac. Uh, George in Naperville. Yeah, Dan, uh, Biden is prepared as well as El Cid was in his last battle. <laughs> All right, George. Uh, Kip in Stillman Valley. Yeah, hey, uh, listen, I think it worked real well with what Lou put in his report, and that's why they let it go out, because it is a distraction on his mental state. Instead of the fact that I haven't heard, even on your show this morning, or too much over the, the, the Sunday shows, and that is that President Biden at the time was not president when yeah, he had those classifieds. I understand. Thanks for the call, Kip. Look, we've been through that all before. We've been through all of it before. I mean, we can go through it again. I'm aware he wasn't vice. He wasn't vice president, or he he wasn't a president. He didn't have the same privilege. He was. Some of this goes back to when he was a senator. I know we've been through it all before. But that's actually not the most pressing issue right now. When you have the American public saying he's not fit for the job when he is otherwise not going to be prosecuted per the recommendation from her. You're listening to Chicago's Morning Answer with Dan Proft and Amy Jacobson on AM560, The Answer. Hey, business owners, is your business and money in good hands? Does your bank invest in your success? Hi, Mike Gallagher here, letting you know that when you need a relationship bank, Signature Bank makes commercial banking personal. I love these guys. Not only do they have expansive industry experience, a strong financial track record, but they're also highly capitalized for strategic growth. That's so important. That's why Signature Bank is my bank. They know what it means to grow a business by designing solutions that are right for you and only you. These are real people. They're ready to help. So reach out to my friends at Signature Bank. Make the call today, 773-467-5630, 773-467-5630, or visit them online at SignatureBank.Bank. That's SignatureBank.Bank. Your business could be Signature Bank's next success story. Go online, SignatureBank.Bank, member FDIC, Equal housing lender. Signature Bank. This is Chicago's Morning Answer with Dan Proft and Amy Jacobson on AM560, The Answer. Top of the morning, Dan and, uh, well, just Dan, Amy, uh, traveling back from... uh, 
from Europe. She'll be back in tomorrow. Uh, so, hey, uh, Naperville, Downers Grove, Glen Ellen, Hinsdale, River Forest, Oak Park, Wilmette, Glencoe, Highland Park. Why can't you be a little bit more like Boston? We're getting shown up by Boston. In the competition to be America's most welcoming city, I am sorry to say that Chicago and Chicagoland are falling behind because they've already crossed the Rubicon. They don't need a city councilman to propose a sign-up list. Boston residents are proactive. I'm sure uh, after they got done with that uh, Dunkin' Donuts commercial, Aflac and Damon were on their way back to open their homes to migrants. Boston residents answering the clarion call from Governor Healy of Massachusetts, from Mayor Wu of Boston, from Boston City Councilman Julia Mejia. At um, Wellesley, Brookline, you know, cities and towns that have so much more resources um, than the city of Boston. Boston City Councilwoman Julia Mejia thinks more migrants can be placed outside of Boston. I think everybody needs to start opening up their doors because this is a shared responsibility. Exactly. Shared responsibility. That was the NBC affiliate there in Boston reporting. Doesn't Boston City Council human Julia Mejia have it right? It's a shared responsibility. Everyone needs to start opening up their doors. I'm talking to you, Naperville. 312-642-5600, turnkey.pro answer line. 64636DA, turnkey.pro text line. And she's not just talking in abstractions. This is happening. Meet the Stokeses. Colin and Julia Stokes of Brookline, Massachusetts. The CBS affiliate reporting. Colin and Jessica Stokes called the state to sign up to be a host family. It took less than an hour for the displaced migrants to be dropped off at their door. I gotta get sheets on the bed. How many people are coming? Right. Where, are they, where are they from? What ages? We knew, we really knew nothing. The need is so clearly uh, overwhelming. The family of four who didn't want to go on camera had been sleeping at Logan Airport. The parents and two kids journeyed from Chile to Texas, then Massachusetts, and there are so many stories like it. It's boggles the mind that there are so many hundreds of those stories. Oh, uh, thousands, tens of thousands, hundreds of thousands, millions. I think we're I think we're well into the multiples at this point. Aren't you ashamed? Aren't you properly shamed by the Stokeses, by Council Human Mejia in Boston? What are we doing here waiting for the state to waiting for our community to secure a couple million bucks from the state like Oak Park to set up camps in churches or community facilities? Where's that sort of private initiative like the Stokes family in Brookline, Massachusetts is exhibiting? You certainly hear the private rap. You hear the initiative to talk and talk and talk. <laughs> and then Naperville City council last week remember you know i don't want to take one in take any migrants in i'm not about that but i, I should be happy to participate in a round table to talk about the issue 
I'd be happy to uh, have, uh, you know, uh, government agencies and government vendors come in and put uh, these people, you know, them, the stranger that we're supposed to welcome in big group settings. I'm not equipped to take care of another human being. Are you a father? Sure. Uh, But I'm not equipped. I don't know how to host another human being. Oh, well, the Stokes family in Brookline does. So what skills do they have that you don't there? Particularly uh, as civilized, as enlightened as the leadership of these communities is. With their signs about being neighbor strong, where hate has no home. Huh. Three one two six four two fifty six hundred turnkey dot pro answer line six four six three six da turnkey dot pro text line. Now I'm not saying that it's not replete with danger, but I mean I'm talking about people who spend their lives eradicating hate. These intrepid social justice warriors at the Starbucks in downtown Hinsdale. They're not going to be deterred by a little bit of risk. They, this is their life's calling. These are serious people with a real commitment to build a better America. I, I just wonder where they are. I mean, I know they're at the microphone at a city council meeting. And I know they're at the downtown eateries and coffee shops. But I mean, in this moment... Maybe there's a signed campaign there. Why will you answer the Stokes' challenge? Let's start to name names. The people that are stepping up volunteering, like the Stokeses of Brookline, Massachusetts. Where are our Stokeses in Chicago, I wonder? Probably just doing so privately. Don't want to make a big spectacle of themselves. I highly doubt that. That's not exactly their M.O., is it? Um, I know there's problems, you know, but again, this moment, these are the people we most care about in America, people who are here illegally. That's not me saying it. That's a better of mine. That's somebody that, um, the denizens of those communities I mentioned and so many more in Chicagoland, have great respect for the kind of regard that is owed of Brandon Johnson, a Kim Fox, a J.B. Pritzker, a Senator Chris Murphy from Connecticut, the lead negotiator for the Dem Socialists on that Senate immigration bill that went down in flames. Listen to what he said over the weekend talking to Rachel Maddow, doppelganger, and Andy Shaw, son-in-law, Chris Hayes, about who people, who the people whom they most care about. Said it straight away. The negotiation didn't have a path to citizenship. It was entirely on their terms in order to get Ukraine funding, right? Well, I mean, Chris, that's been a failed play for 20 years. So you are right that that has been the Democratic strategy for 
30 years, maybe. Uh, and it has failed to deliver for the people we care about most, the undocumented Americans that are in this country. The undocumented Americans that are in this country. They're undocumented, but they're Americans. So, right, so citizenship doesn't matter. Yeah, we kind of knew that, but it's nice for you to confirm it. The people we care about most are the people in this country who are undocumented, which is a euphemism for illegal, generally speaking. Yeah, no, I got it. And uh, also, importantly there, the last 30 years, you're right, we've tried to get path to citizenship for people here illegally. That's been our goal, and we're trying to give as little as we can give on border security and on public safety, by extension, in order to get the people we care about most their citizenship so we in public office can be the people they care about most when it comes time to vote pretty straightforward paul and carrie are on chicago's morning answer so i'm assuming you're when you mention this family that they're from chile mexico because i'm, I'm not aware of a country that borders mexico that's named chile and According to our own immigration policies, would they not have to stop all that sees either in Central America, Mexico, but they, strangely enough, crossed all those terrains and came to the United States? Well, if they're in Chile, well, there's immigration policies. Well, there's no, there's no remain in Mexico policy. So, yeah, you can, I mean, they're, obviously people are coming from the world over. They're not being uh forced to rem- safe third there's no safe third country policy in effect in this administration there's no remain in mexico uh, right well, but of course I, I thought maybe there was a chile mexico I'm sorry. oh that's yeah thanks for the call paul yeah it's uh it it borders uh it borders gaza as i understand it uh from the president mm-hmm. um again you heard on mike scott's newscast too that ali mayorkas after he was done polishing biden's apple you know, the greatest uh, intellect in Western civilization. How difficult it is to prepare <laughs> prepare for a meeting for uh, Joe Biden. Right. Because I have to keep reintroducing myself throughout the meeting. That's why it's difficult to prepare for a meeting with the big guy. But anyway, uh, Mayorkas, uh, after he was done with that bit of business, he went on to talk about the responsibility for border security, which all of a sudden, is a crisis. The situation at the border is now a crisis. It wasn't a crisis. We have secured the border. This was Myricus's line for much of the last three years up until recently. But now it absolutely is a crisis and it is none of our doing and we have no responsibility to address it. Well, we don't bear responsibility for a broken system and we're doing a tremendous amount within that broken system. But fundamentally, fundamentally, Congress is the only one who can fix it. There is no question that we have a broken system. There is no question that we have a challenge, a crisis at the border. And there is no question that Congress needs to fix it. And we're doing everything we can within that broken system, short of legislation, to address what is a not just a challenge for the United States, but one throughout our region. Yeah. Um, good luck, uh with that line of argumentation. Good luck spinning out of this. I mean, it's I don't know which is going to be least effective trying to convince um, the 80 percent of the American people who see with their own eyes the mental 
fitness of the president, that uh, he is this, uh, you know, perspicacious visionary that uh, you keep describing him to be, or the, hey, um, forget everything we told you, Congress has failed to fix the border, and that's the problem. It's the Republicans on the Hill. It's their fault. Those uh, intractable MAGA cultists in the House, it's their fault. Good luck with that. Um, you know, and then you have this, these other complications, too, this, this ongoing, uh, these ongoing crimes that are being, uh, this ongoing problem of crimes being committed by people in this country illegally. Um, for example, in New York City, again, a uh, migrant from Venezuela, 15 years old, arrested after a day-long manhunt. Uh, he was characterized by the chief of detectives for the NYPD as a very, very violent suspect who recklessly fired a 45 caliber handgun in a crowded area in New York City, winging a female tourist. And then when he was uh, taken into custody, he cried. So so I don't know what we're supposed to do with that, if that's supposed to somehow be a mitigating circumstance. Um, anyway. Firing at a security guard who confiscated a coat he and two friends tried to steal from a sporting goods store at West 42nd and Broadway. Um, yeah, the the thirty uh, the uh, bullet that he fired at the security guard missed the guard and hit a thirty year old thirty eight year old Brazilian tourist waiting in line to buy a pair of sneakers. About um, and so this is sort of consistent. So let's see the um, a person in this country legally who's engaged in one criminal act, uh, commits another criminal act when he opens fire, and the victim is uh, a tourist who is in this country legally and following the law, trying to do something simple like buy a pair of sneakers. And we're supposed to put all our energy and effort into this uh, poor, downtrodden 15-year-old Venezuelan who came here to steal and shoot people who prevented him try to shoot people who tried to prevent him from stealing. Mm-hmm. And you're not supposed to distinguish between uh, any of these individuals who have entered this country. That is gauche and pimply and xenophobic and racist and all those things. That's what they're selling. Okay. No, well, good luck. Good luck selling it. Um, just another example. These These, these cases have been legion for a long time but they're coming in waves now uh and a person here illegally with five deportations arrested in texas for killing a 10 year old texas boy he's a mexican national he hit the boy while crossing the street and then fled the boy was walking home from school shouldn't have been in this country 10 year old boy should in texas shouldn't be dead oh well you're gonna break a few eggs when you're uh trying to uh, be a welcoming country welcoming city sanctuary state okay tim and woodstock you're on chicago's morning answer morning dan um you know every time i probably played that clip that you had last week of that naperville resident who who went through training to uh to bring a migrant family into his home uh but then he had an awakening and I guess I'm kind of interpreting it for him that uh, he, he realized actually that would that would be uh, like me uh, taking responsibility for the chaos that I helped create by voting for the sentimental barbarians. That's really what he was saying, although he tried to pass it off as 
being um, more sensitive to building shelters with access to lawyers and culturally relevant food and uh, understanding their religion. It's a good example of what the state does. They, the state and, and people who vote for these people, um, they create the chaos, they help create it, and then the solution has to come from the same, the same people who will come up with nonsense solutions for it. Yeah, thanks for the call, Tim. Well, it's 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 even worse than that. They create the chaos, then they they sort of standardize it and normalize it. I mean, there's there's no that 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 you know by any means necessary. So let's get them in, and then we'll uh, tell the stories of the the uh, downtrodden migrants searching for a better life. We'll ignore the stories of predation by people we've allowed into this country. The threats that are posed, the people that are hurt or worse, will um, finance this while decrying the hard-heartedness of anybody who doesn't want to finance it. I mean, it will finance it into the billions and billions of dollars while while not providing resources and services to actual taxpaying American citizens. Everything going on in New York, and then I saw the story in the Post over the weekend uh, that uh, New York public housing residents are waiting like 65 days for even minor fixes to their units. Oh, wait, are, are, so are, are these uh, families living in subsidized housing in New York, are they the downtrodden? Isn't that why we have welfare state programs like subsidized housing? And... Um, there's a and this is against the backdrop of a big scandal. There was like the, the biggest raid in FBI history last week when some five dozen New York uh, State Public Housing Authority employees were arrested for participating in a multi-million dollar allegedly participating, of course, in a multi-million dollar uh, bribe scheme with uh, with vendors to the housing authority, and uh, and then all this is uh, you know. It, millions of people, all, all the well, not yet, uh, hundreds of thousands of people in New York, but millions of dollars, billions of dollars, New York City, New York State, millions of dollars in welfare programs, transfer payments, billions of dollars in health care coverage and the like, the housing. And then those downtrodden American citizens who ostensibly need a. Uh, need the safety net and a, a hand up, as it were. Not saying that I'm supporting these welfare programs, but I mean, let's let's work the logic of the left. You have these programs for American citizens. You support them? Of course I support them. Really. And so tell me what's going on in the Housing Authority. The corruption, the lack of services for residents. Meanwhile, over here, for non-citizens, mainly in this country illegally, what do you have? And for those who commit crimes, what do you do? Release them? Like you did with the gang that beat up those two cops? I mean, if you think that all of this going on in places like, if the left does, all this going on in places like New York, and your line is going to be Republicans in Congress have failed to fix the broken system, good luck selling that. You'll notice one thing of late that you know the left is not chastened. They haven't been shamed. They're incorrigible. 
but they have gotten a lot more silent. The only time they rear their head is when the they feel compelled to because they've been backed into a corner like they were in Naperville and properly publicly humiliated. And so they feel like, you know, they, they can't help themselves to so come out and say that's not nice and that's not building, com- finding common ground and and being a solutionist and all the other sophistry that was on display at that city council meeting from a handful of Naperville residents that are representative of a lot more than a handful that we brought to you last week. But they're a lot quieter than they've been lately, aren't they? Dan and Amy, Chicago's Morning Answer. You're listening to Chicago's Morning Answer with Dan Proft and Amy Jacobson on AM560, The Answer. If you're looking for the latest news, insight into what it means, and the sharpest opinion, there's only one station in Chicago where you can turn, and it's this one. We're AM560, The Answer. Top of the morning, Dan, and uh, Amy will be back tomorrow. So uh, we uh, poured over a lot of the Tucker Carlson Putin interview on Friday. Of course, it was released Thursday night. Uh, One topic we didn't get to that much uh, on Friday that I do want to get to with our next guest is the exchange that Tucker Carlson and Putin had on the matter of the Nord Stream pipeline and who is who is the saboteur we don't have any official ruling sweden germany uh denmark have investigations ongoing but it's sort of like uh, cocaine in the white house anything that's sensitive sadly the origins of covid anything that's sensitive you can count on sort of the establishment whether domestically or globally to uh Essentially run out the clock, uh, an exhaustive investigation that everybody has forgotten about, can't even remember exactly the circumstances under which the event occurred. And we, after uh, uh, a thorough effort, we can't be we can't come to any sort of conclusion about who the responsible party is. Uh, the, The Dobbs Opinion League at the Supreme Court, same same sort of thing. I think the same people are in charge of all of these investigations. All right, so take a listen to the exchange on Nord Stream. Who blew up Nord Stream? <laughs> you for sure. I was busy that day. <laughs> Nate, it, do you have... Do you have <laughs> uh, I did not blow up Nord Stream. Uh, thank you, though. You personally may have an alibi, but the CIA has no such alibi. Do you have evidence that NATO or the CIA did it? You know, I won't get into details, but people always say in such cases, look for someone who is interested. But I'm confused. I mean, that's the biggest act of industrial terrorism ever, and it's the largest emission of CO2 in in history. Okay, so if you had evidence, and presumably given your security services, your intel services, you would, that NATO, the U.S., CIA, the West did this, why wouldn't you present it and win a propaganda victory? (laughs) In the war of propaganda, it is very difficult to defeat the United States because the United States controls all the world's media and many European media. The ultimate beneficiary of the biggest European media are American financial institutions. Don't you know that? So it is possible to get involved in this work But it is cost-prohibitive, so to speak. We can simply shine the spotlight on our sources of information, and we will not achieve results. 
So uh, I can't produce the evidence that would substantiate my claim because nobody will believe me. That's not particularly persuasive. But um, the topic is uh, is an important one. So let's start there with Stephen Bucci, who's served America for three decades as an Army Special Forces officer and top Pentagon official, visiting fellow of the Heritage Foundation's Allison Center for Foreign Policy Studies. Stephen, thanks for joining us. Appreciate it. Oh, it's always my pleasure. Thank you for being or having me back on the show. Uh, what about uh, what about Nord Stream? You know, this was a there's a pipelines that uh, allowed Russia to provide forty five percent of the natural gas that uh, Europe consumes. So it was a big deal, um, and um, there was an, a competitive a, a competing pipeline that was coming online just days before Nord Stream was uh, sabotaged, and and it has been. Sub- concluded that there was sabotage we just nobody has offered a conclusion as to who the saboteurs were so what what what, what should we glean from that exchange um uh, you know generally speaking uh well because you know if you listen to to the way tucker uh formed the question uh he did it fairly well you know look this would be a massive victory for you if if you had proof that it was the United States or another Western country who did it, trying to smear Russia, why, if you have the info, don't you you put it out there? And and this is a man he's asking who has had no problem saying some of the most ridiculous things in the world. Uh, you know, like, well, this is this war is all Ukraine's fault. Okay, but you guys invaded them. Uh, so uh, it does not leave Putin with a lot of credibility on this subject. I haven't listened to the whole interview, so I can't opine on, on every bit of it. But in this particular exchange, Putin does not come across convincing. Well, say, well, oh, well, you no, guys no. control it all, so we really can't uh, get the word out there. Oh, that's a bunch of baloney. Yeah, no, I agree with that. But 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 then, so what's the larger context of of Nord Stream though? Why why haven't we been able to find out who is the responsible party? It would seem to be an important uh, uh, an important piece of information to to identify. I I don't know the answer to that. Uh, is it perhaps we're leaving the investigation to these other agencies because we don't think anybody will believe us if we say, well, look, it was Russia. Uh, I I think all of the uh, intel that I have seen points towards Russia doing it uh, and, you know, or Russia trying to do it and blame it on Ukraine or uh, a Western country. Ukraine really didn't have the capability to do what happened. So I don't think we can blame them. Uh, And, you know, to be honest with you, there's only a couple of countries who could have pulled this off. the United States, one or two other NATO allies, like perhaps Britain or France, uh, and and Russia or China. That's about it. Uh, and I'm not sure who did it yet. And I think we, we at least have to wait for those European uh, investigations, a couple of which have some, some credibility, uh, and, and see what they say. It, it may not be convincing evidence at that point, but I, I don't think it's worth trying to guess now. Uh, speaking of Britain, one of the other things that Putin said uh, vis-a-vis Ukraine was that 
effectively, there was a, a peace settlement on the table that Zelensky had uh, at least voiced support for. And then Boris Johnson, who was British prime minister at the time, flew in and scuttled the deal. Uh, is there any truth to that? That that one I don't know the answer to. Uh Frankly, that doesn't sound convincing either. It doesn't. Given how hardcore Zelensky has been since the beginning of this, I mean, I could see some of the European allies getting wobbly and saying, well, you know, we really need to, to probably give away half of your country just to get peace. You know, they've done that before. They could do it again. I don't see Zelensky being the, the wobbly one in, in this case. I think that's uh, not credible. Something else. I mean, this this was uh, uh, a thread throughout the two hour interview, which is Putin is uh, essentially this is how he cast himself. You know, I'm uh, a man of peace. I have been spent the last uh, two decades plus reaching out to the West after the fall of the Soviet Union. And he's got a very stylized version of how that went down, too, by the way. Um, but which I'll I won't get into now. But but uh, I even asked Bill Clinton when he was uh, on his way out the door and the end of the last century, if uh, there was any possibility Russia could be part of NATO. He seemed open minded to it. But then he talked to staff. He came back to me, said, that's not going to happen. I said, fine, but just don't expand eastward. And then at every turn, I had commitments that we were not going to expand, e- that the, 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 the NATO would not expand eastward towards Russia. And they were broken and multiple times. And I've, you know, I've extended this olive branch and that olive branch. I've tried to do this. I've tried to do that. He said the same thing when uh, the question was asked, will you allow us to take even Gershkovich, the Wall Street Journal reporter, home? It's like, well, I've done I've already done so much. So at some point he can return to his motherland probably. But. But I've done so much and I've got nothing in return. I've been just betrayed by the West at every turn. And I just wonder how that's that's sort of a top line summary of his characterization of the last 20 years of his reign. And uh, I just wanted to get your reaction to that. Uh, well, you know, I, I can't give you eyewitness accounts of that entire period. I can give you eyewitness accounts of some of it, though. And I have to tell you, when we were doing our missile defense set up because we were very concerned about uh, Iran and and North Korea. This is during the, the George W. Bush administration when I was in the Pentagon. We brought the Russians in. We brought in very high-ranking Russians and said, this is what we're doing. We opened up top-secret documents and showed them. It was stuff they probably already knew, so it wasn't a, that big a deal. But we were as transparent as I think we have ever been with the Russians. And the Russians said, not no, but heck no. We know you're really doing this against us. We don't trust you guys. So for him to, to portray himself and his subordinates as, oh, we were always reaching out the olive branches. It was you guys who were the problem, uh, including on the the whole transfer when, when they were uh, trying to rebuild their country after the fall of the Soviet Union, the things we did to try and help them uh, were way over the top. Were They were the first ones we went to uh, in that period, not to the other uh, former Soviet socialist republics. We went to Russia first because they, they were the big elephant that was still in, in that position. And Russia 
stiff-armed us at every every uh, point in the process. Uh, you know, I get they're suspicious of, you know, the expansion of NATO, but I'm sorry, he's trying to operate under the old sphere of influence kind of theory that those countries used to be part of the Soviet Union or under their sway through, through the uh, Warsaw Pact, and they should stay under their sway now. And if anything that violates that is a threat to Mother Russia, I'm sorry, that is a delusional view of his position in the world and, and the way the world should run. The big countries don't get to poop all over the little countries and say, we don't care what you want to do, we don't care where you want to face, you're going to be under our control and it's going to stay that way in perpetuity. Sorry, uh, Vlad, that's not going to happen. He, he was asked by Tucker about his uh, designs past Ukraine on Poland and the Baltics. Listen to what he said. Because we have no interest in Poland, Latvia, or anywhere else. Why would we do that? We simply don't have any interest. It's just threat-mongering. Well, the argument, I know you know this, is that, well, he invaded Ukraine. He has territorial aims across the continent. And you're saying unequivocally you don't. It is absolutely out of the question. You just don't have to be any kind of analyst. It goes against common sense to get involved in some kind of a global war. Uh, so, Stephen, what's your assessment of uh, his designs beyond Ukraine? I, I, I think uh, he's ignoring the, the key point to that argument. If that's the case, then why the heck did you invade Ukraine? I mean, Ukraine, one, doesn't have the capability to go after Russia. Ukraine has had essentially, prior to the invasion, kind of given up on, on getting Crimea back. They still wanted some peace on their eastern uh, part of the country, but that's because those areas that Russia had helped secede, and there's no doubt that Russia helped them do that with, with military forces who came in with no insignia on them, uh, they were still agitating and attacking uh, Ukrainians. Uh, it, it's, it's kind of bizarre to me that Putin thinks nobody was watching this whole time. If he's willing to invade Ukraine, then why should we believe him when he says, oh, but I don't want to invade anybody else? Uh, it's just not credible. Uh, and he really is betting on the looniest people in America to believe him and think he's a credible partner uh, in the future. And he has proven himself not to be. At a brief period when, frankly, they were really down on their luck and they watched the first Gulf War and went, whoa, those guys were a little better at this stuff than we thought they were. I'm glad we didn't have to fight them. And they got very cooperative. And then since then, Putin has, has just done mischief. And I'm sorry, I know a lot of people want to believe him because they, they think we shouldn't be in Ukraine. But I got to tell you, this man is a professional liar. Uh, he is a trained intelligence operative. Uh, and he's really good at looking you straight in the eye 
and telling you something that is 100% off the truth and would probably pass a polygraph while doing it. No, I mean, I. But it's, it's not about him being a partner, though, and I don't believe him either. I don't take anything he says at face value either. But it's a question of making the assessment, right, of whether or not, if, if from his perspective, the way he thinks it would be his in his interest to follow on you uh, up on Ukraine into the Baltics or Poland or or elsewhere. That that's the question. It's not like any sort of any um, a naive view that he is a you know a partner for a better tomorrow. I think he 100%, if he got away with taking over Ukraine, if his original plan had worked and he had taken Kiev and he had, had blown the Zelensky government out and was able to impose or, or place someone there that was a puppet to him, that he wouldn't have immediately turned around and started fiddling with the, the Baltic countries or Poland. But down the road, he would have uh, taken that as, hey, we did it in Ukraine. Let's see how far we can get in the next one. There's no doubt in my mind that he would have continued to push that, that he would consider it in his interest to do it. Maybe what? not a straight up invasion, but definitely uh, doing that. The little green men, as we started to call them, uh, sending in the operatives, uh, messing with the, the locals, trying to provoke something that would then give them justification to act in defense of uh, people they said were, you know, their people that they had to protect. One other thing before we uh, let you go. Uh, Venezuela saber-rattling in our direction. Amazing uh, that that is. If uh, the U.S. imposes any sanctions on uh, the Venezuelan oil and gas industries, why we've been begging with we've been begging them for oil and gas because of our own idiotic energy policy. But let's say that the U.S. has there the Venezuela is threatening that they will uh, end all repatriation flights of Venezuelan migrants from the United States. And this is a larger issue. These countries that say uh, we send a bunch of people to break into your country. We're not taking them back. What should the U.S. posture be? Uh, you know, the, the Biden administration has painted themselves into a corner with this one. Uh, I don't know what the heck you do with them. You, you can't just put them on a plane and force the plane to land. If the other guys you know, won't let you land, you're kind of stuck. So what do you do with those folks? I don't have a good answer for that. The answer was you shouldn't have let them in in the first place. Yeah, right. But, but you know, I, I don't know what you do if the other country will not cooperate and take the people back. We had that problem with a lot of the folks that we had at Guantanamo Bay. At a certain point, you know, during the global war on terror, with a certain point, we were done with those people. We knew there was no more use holding them. We didn't think they were an enormous threat anymore. Uh, and we were ready to repatriate them. But either they didn't want to go back or the country didn't want to take them back. Uh, and we were like, what the heck do we do with these guys? And there was about 100 plus people that, as you recall, when Obama took office, uh, yep. his, his campaign promise was close it all down, get rid of them all. And Steve, he found we, out he couldn't get rid of all of them. We got to go. Stephen Bucci, Heritage Foundation. Thanks as always, Steve. Appreciate your time. And he joined us on the turnkey.pro answer line. You're listening to Chicago's Morning Answer with Dan Proft and Amy Jacobson on AM560. The Answer. 
This is Chicago's Morning Answer with Dan Proft and Amy Jacobson on AM560, The Answer. Top of the morning, Dan and uh, Amy will be back tomorrow. Uh, we talked a bit of, uh, about it a bit earlier in the program that, uh, unsurprisingly, this weekend had a lot of Biden administration flacks doing damage control duty from his wife to his VP to his spokeswoman to his Homeland Security secretary to his co-campaign chairman. And, um, well, even to the press corps, of course, is Com Shop. You've got the spokeswoman, KJP, and you've got the Com Shop. People like John King over at CNN, take a listen. Yeah. Uh, the stutter, God bless him. I mean, the man deserves a lot of credit for fighting through that in a very public way with yes. a camera aimed at him every second of every day uh, for someone to go through that and put up with it. You know, it takes a lot of courage. And he just, whether you're a Democrat or Republican, independent, uh, you know, people with hardships have to deal with hardships. Uh, he deserves a ton of credit for that. I first covered Joe Biden in Iowa in 1987. I was out there covering Governor wow. Dukakis yeah. and went to other events. He has never been a great communicator, uh, but he is good in small settings yes. and he's a good small talker uh, and he puts you at ease if you're in a small group with him. He's never been great off the teleprompter. And You see what uh, Robert Hurd memorialized in that report is just Joe being Joe. That's just Joe being Joe. He's not a great communicator, but he's good in small groups and he's overcome a lot. And that's all we really should think about. Uh, and then you have so that's one piece of it, right? Oh, Joe's just you know he's not good with the uh, the English. He doesn't speak of the English particularly well. But that doesn't mean he's unfit for the job, of course. And in point of fact, in those small group settings, particularly in crisis situations, I mean, there's nobody better. And that's the other half of what you heard. For example, Kamala Harris. Listen. I have been privileged and proud to serve as Vice President of the United States with Joe Biden as President of the United States. And what I saw of that report last night, I believe is, as a former prosecutor, um, the comments that were made by that prosecutor, gratuitous, inaccurate, and inappropriate. How dare you, sir? And they're also inaccurate because, I mean, the difficult part, most difficult part of Ali Mayorkas' job at Homeland Security is not, uh, well, he's not even trying to to slow the flow of migrants coming across the border. Is not trying to come up with cover stories for the administration's policies with respect to the border. It's just preparing for the meetings. The most difficult part about a meeting with President Biden is preparing for it because he is sharp, intensely probing, and detail-oriented and focused. Yeah, it's got to be intimidating to go into a meeting with that kind of intellectual firepower across the table. And you know he's going to be exacting in his demands. So there it was. He's, he is a intellectual force to be reckoned with. He doesn't speak of the English so good. How dare you uh, bring up his dead son, and say that he forgot the date. How dare you, sir? Gratuitous, inappropriate. Uh, her is a Republican operative appointed by Trump to the Justice Department. So this is a, a political hit job. 
Did I leave anything else out in terms of this cover story? Oh, oh yeah, one thing. Uh, 80% of the American people don't believe the people you just heard. They don't believe them. For more on this and uh, what uh, might be possible if it were to come to that, meaning a replacement for Biden, which I've always said, barring a health event, and I don't mean what occurred on Thursday night, he is going to be the nominee. He's going to be on the ballot. Said that from the beginning. All of the Michelle Obama this and Gavin Newsom that conspiracy theories. And I still think that. But there is a renewed conversation about uh, uh, and I've saw people in articles of impeachment, 25th Amendment. So let's talk about it with our friend and legal expert, Andrew McCarthy, former chief assistant U.S. attorney, Southern District of New York, contributing International Review, author of the bestseller Ball of Collusion, the plot to rig an election and destroy a presidency. Andy, thanks for joining us. Appreciate it. And great to be with you. So, I mean, the short of it is if Biden doesn't want to leave, there's no real accessible way to force him out is there and even if there was an inclination to do so and based on the response you're getting from within the circles of his party at least publicly there isn't much of one no there's not i mean uh the 25th amendment could be invoked but the you know first of all that's a political calculation not a legal one there's not like a legal standard that says you know if you're x uh amount unfit uh, it, this automatically triggers. It's got to be triggered politically, which means by the vice president and uh, the cabinet, or at least half the cabinet. Um, it's really uh, rigged is the wrong word, but the the amendment is geared so that unless you have a president who is, you know, what they had in mind then when they enacted that or ratified it was the JFK situation. If he had lived through. You know, if he had been yeah, um, right, right, uh, conscious after not conscious, but you know, if he had been his organs technically been alive, continuing yeah. to work, but right, um, or Woodrow Wilson, you know, that whole situation. So, if you have a president who's not completely out of it like that, uh, you know, I don't mean just like hyperbolically, rhetorically out of it, like we refer to Biden at times, but like really out of it. Then, yes, you could invoke it, but. Otherwise, a president who doesn't want to be removed won't be removed under the, you know, under the terms of the amendment. I don't see any stomach at the moment for removing him. But I just would point out it was a shocking poll. I think it was an ABC poll over the weekend that 86 percent of the country doesn't think this guy is up to the job. Yeah. And I mean, how many how many issues in American politics do we have that are 86 percent issues? No, right. And, 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 and right. And what you're supposed to, you're, the spin that they came up with. I mean, I'm not saying they have a strong hand to begin with, but this, you know, what he does remember is he created all these jobs and he did all this. He's, you know, it's like, yeah. Okay. Uh, Mitchell Andrew. All right. All right. That's, that's not quite uh, going to be enough that he, what, you know, what he remembers is all the wonderful things he's did. First of all, um, many of that 87, 86%, a majority, in fact, don't think he's done such a wonderful job. On top of that, it's like, it's it's the typical don't believe your lying eyes sort of defense. And it's just, it's just a, it's hard to persuade people not to believe their lying eyes. No, that's right. And also, it's clear he doesn't want to go. You know, and look, if it was, 
we, we're all thinking about what would be great for the country or what would be the best for the country. And, you know, you don't really have an alternative here that would be great for the country. It's not like, you know, he leaves and you get Harris, but, you know. Right. Um, but if you if you put it in his, you know, you try to get into his shoes, um, when you have a guy who's been on the national stage for half a century and, you know, I think despite his very severe flaws and limitations, somehow has managed to have like the two highest jobs that you can have in the executive branch. Mm-hmm. He's at the pinnacle of power to expect him to get out because you think he should get out when he wants to stay. is It's just not realistic. And, you know, look, he's got a very good chance of beating Trump. Um, I still think he's, he's the favorite if it's him and Trump. And I know things are bad now, but I think sometimes people don't realize how bad this is going to get for Trump yeah. in the end. I mean, they have, they have like a quarter of a billion dollars that they're already buying up ads um, because Trump has to divert so much money to legal help. And the, the, RN, the Republican Party is run completely incompetently, so they don't have money. So the Democrats are – I mean, the deluge that's coming starting around like late August, September is just – it's going to be like nothing we ever saw before. Well, I mean, that's that's true. And, and the, the, I mean, the real wild card for me as it pertains to Trump is how people react if any of those cases bef- that, uh, right. you know, that 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 right. that are pending get to trial and uh, an adjudication. And so, in other words, if he's convicted of any crime before November yep. and then you get the, you know, the convicted felon messaging on that topic. And speaking of which, uh, let's let's divert to Trump for a second. I mean, is it your handle that the only case that looks more likely than not to get to trial before November is the Alvin Bragg case in Manhattan? I th- I still think that they badly want to try the Washington federal case. Oh, I sure. As a practical matter, as a practical matter, I don't see how Judge Chutkin can schedule that trial until we see what the Supreme Court does with the obstruction case involving the J6 defendants. And we're probably not going to get that uh, until late June, just so y- your listeners understand why, why I'm saying that. Um, even though President Trump is not a party in that J6 case where the Supreme Court is apparently disturbed by the way prosecutors have stretched that statute, um, the same statute that's at issue in that case is the, the main two counts of the case against President Trump and the four count indictment. Mm-hmm. So I don't see how Chutkin can start. If the Supreme Court is going to give guidance on that statute, I don't see how she can start the case prior to that. So I don't think that case can go before sometime in July. And depending on what the court does with the obstruction statute, it could completely change the case. So we'll have to look at that. But that's the case they really want to go to trial on. Um, I suggested over the weekend they'll never do this because it's a good idea. But um, <laughs> I, I, I think if you really wanted to get the Florida case to trial, what what Biden should do is pardon Trump on all the classified documents counts, which there's 32 in that indictment, and sweat it down to a straight obstruction case. The reason that case is bogged down is because the Classified Information Procedures Act requires that all of the admissibility issues get litigated prior to trial, and there are appeals. So if you got rid of the classified information counts and just made it a a straight obstruction case, which is what I think they should have done in the first place, 
you could actually get that to trial. And it would be the right thing to do because, you know, looking at what her did with Biden, the idea that the difference between the Biden case and the Trump case is that Biden cooperated and Trump obstructed, so they say, um, that's a reason to charge Trump with obstruction. It's not a reason to not charge Biden with classified documents. You know, if I commit a murder, but I'm very cooperative with the investigators, they're not going to say, well, you know, that whole murder thing, let's forget about that. Right. You know, I'm going to be charged. Um, so it's not a good reason not to charge Biden, especially when you cha- charged Trump. So just basic fairness, they ought to cancel out the classified information counts on Trump. And if they really want to get the case to trial, uh, the only way that case is getting to trial is if they get the classified stuff out. Well, so so on her, I mean, that is actually an interesting idea, um, uh, probably a good one from their perspective. Um, the uh, the but the, the Robert, you know, Robert, her, you heard part of it there. J.B. Pritzker saying to oh, I smell a political rat. Uh, Robert Hurd did this, and he included the language there about Biden's uh, senility because he is um, – it's a hit job from a MAGA cultist that was in Trump's DOJ. Uh, or it's uh, Robert Hurd covering his ass because he has to have a rationale for why he's not charging Biden, and this is it. This is what he came up with. But, but I mean, w- w- give us your assessment of Hurd's uh, decision and the quality of the report that he issued? Well, I think his reasoning is flawed, um, but not in a way that, it, in the opposite way of what Pritzker and the rest of them are suggesting. I mean, I think it's ridiculous, first of all, to accuse him of a political hit job, because first of all, the bottom line here is had a case where the guy willfully committed the crimes, but he's given him a pass. Right. So, you know, I mean, right away, you're starting with the main conclusion is he, he, he doesn't think he should be charged. Um, but the other thing that people need to understand about the way the regs work, they explicitly say this is supposed to be a confidential report from the sp- special counsel to the attorney general where the special counsel lays out all of his reasoning. So in theory – now, it's become a convention that these things eventually get publicized, and I'm sure her must have written it with an idea that the public might see it. But it was up to Attorney General Garland what got released publicly. Her's job was to give was to give Garland a full report on why he thought Biden shouldn't be charged. And he would have had to do if he had charged Biden, he would have had to do the same thing, explain his rationale. And if you're a prosecutor and you're explaining to your boss why I think even though we have overwhelming evidence, and the reason I say it's overwhelming is this is where I think the report is flawed. He found that Biden willfully violated the law, and the statute only requires a showing of gross negligence. So willfully is the highest intent standard in the criminal law. Gross negligence, you don't even have to show that the guy intended to violate it, just that he was uh, grossly negligent in carrying out his obligations to safeguard national security information. So to me, that's an overwhelming case to charge. And the other rational, the other flaw in his rationale, I think, is that if you say that Biden shouldn't be charged because um, – the jury would be very sympathetic to him as a well-meaning uh, elderly guy with a bad memory. The issue is not what his state of mind is now. Right. The issue is what his state of mind was at the time that these acts got committed. 
Some of them go back to when he was in the Senate, which he left 16 years ago. And some of them go back to when he was vice president, you know, from uh, 2008 till, uh, till 2016. So that's eight years ago. He was a very different guy then than he is now. But the other thing is, if you're the prosecutor reporting to your boss about why we don't charge this, if one of the reasons you don't charge it is if I charge this guy, I'm going to be in a six to 12 month litigation over whether he's fit to stand trial. You have to disclose that to the to the boss. You don't have like a, a choice about that. And that's a significant issue here. Even if Biden thinks he's fine, any competent defense lawyer, if he were to have gotten a multiple count felony indictment, would be throwing everything at the court that you could throw at the court to try to get him out of it. And one of them would be he's not fit to stand trial. So that was going to be a significant issue. The, the thought that you wouldn't put that in a report is crazy. And the fact is, if Garland thought that it shouldn't be out there, he could have redacted it. But it was Garland's choice to make this report public. And it was Garland's choice to, you know, to to not put those, you know, to not redact those things before they went out. And I think this is just another one of these things, Dan, where it's like sanctuary cities, you know, they all want to be sanctuary. Chicago wants to be a sanctuary city until you actually have to be one. Right. Yeah. Right. And then you have Biden, Biden and and uh, Garland. They want to tell you how transparent they are. Well, this is transparency. Transparency isn't something you just get a medal for. It's when you put out information that is very unflattering. That's what it requires. So they run around telling everyone they're going to be transparent. This is what it is. He put it out. On the uh, Supreme Court uh, oral arguments in the Colorado ballot access case last week, um, it seemed to me that, that that maybe Justice Roberts sort of had the definitive exchange with the Colorado attorney, the attorney for the state of Colorado, where he basically made the argument, a very practical one, that said, if we allow this, then how do we stop uh, this from being a wildfire across the country and the Supreme Court ultimately being put in the position of deciding, you know, which handful of states where both men are on the ballot count in terms of deciding who the president, uh, who who a president would be. Just a practical matter of the precedent that Colorado would set if that state Supreme Court decision was allowed to stand. Seems to me where the court is, I know it's dangerous reading into all arguments, but Boy, that was coming across pretty strongly, even across sort of the uh, ideological divide there. Yeah, I think that's right. And I think he was also he's obviously going to write the opinion, you know, when the uh, right when the chief justice is in the majority, he gets to write it or assign it. I'm sure he'll write it himself. I think what he's what he wants is a nine nothing opinion if he can if he can do that. And I think it's very possible in this case that he could. What I'm worried about, though, Dan, is that I think he can get consensus on uh, on that point about how if you let a state do this, you can have complete chaos. I think the court's on board with that. But the problem is they don't want to get into, like, what an insurrection is and what you have to do to right. commit one and all that jazz. Um, so they're looking for consensus that keeps them away from that because that's politically charged. But the thing is, if they don't solve that, what you're going to have happen is if Trump wins the election, the Democrats in Congress, who are not the states now, right? The, the 14th Amendment says it could be invoked by Congress. And Section 5 of the 14th Amendment says Congress can, is the one who's in charge with enacting uh, standards uh, to enforce it. 
So what we're, you know, the consensus the court is forming is around what states can do. It's not about what Congress can do. And I could easily see if Trump wins the election, Democrats in Congress at the next January 6th say that they don't want to have him seated because he's not eligible, because he's an insurrectionist. And then we're right back to the drawing board. So I really hope they decide what an insurrection is, but I don't think they're going to. Well, couldn't they also just decide to say, well, look, we're, we're, we're not going to decide, uh, we're not going to define what an insurrection is because the individual hasn't been charged with anything that resembles seditious conspiracy, anything that resembles, uh, you know, it's something that's tantamount in, in the, under criminal law to an insurrection. So if, if, if you're not charging him under criminal law or in, an impe- uh, 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 or in a successful impeachment proceeding with it, then, then, um, then it's not an insurrection. Yeah, I think th- that's right, and that's. I hope that they go there. What they could say is, after the 14th Amendment was ratified, Congress enacted two pieces of legislation that were relevant. One was a civil lawsuit to, in, to enforce Section 3 of the 14th Amendment. The other was what comes down to us now as the insurrection criminal statute. The civil lawsuit is no longer on the books. It was enacted in 1870, and for some reason it was repealed in 1942, but we still have the criminal statute. So I ho- what I hope they say is we're not going to get involved in what an insurrection is, but Congress has gotten involved by enacting a criminal statute, and at a minimum, somebody needs to be convicted of it before you can say he's an insurrectionist. So, you know, we'll, the Justice Department, as you point out, has never charged Trump. They've never charged anyone. They've charged, I think, was it 1,260 people now, I think, have been arrested in connection one way or another with uh, the Capitol riot. No one has been charged with insurrection. Andy McCarthy, former chief assistant, U.S. attorney, Southern District of New York, contributing at National Review, author of the bestseller, Ball of Collusion, the plot to rig an election and destroy a presidency. Andy, thank you as always. Appreciate it. Thanks, Dan. And Andy joined us on the turnkey.pro answer line. You're listening to Chicago's Morning Answer with Dan Proft and Amy Jacobson on AM560, The Answer. America First with Sebastian Gorka. Weekday afternoons at 3 on AM560, The Answer. Top of the morning, Dan. Uh, Amy will be back tomorrow. So, uh, Anastava Murray, the... uh, Dumbest person ever graduate from my alma mater, Bennett Academy. Of course, she's in the Illinois General Assembly. Of course, she's been sent there three times by the enlightened, professional, highly competent and intelligent voters in Downers Grove and the surrounding areas into Naperville. <laughs> Western suburbs. I mean, why wouldn't you send a communist loon to the General Assembly? You sent one to Congress, Sean Caston. Anastava Murray has new legislation. Yeah, but these are proponents of open borders. They're proponents of blank checks for people who want to come to this country anytime they want to come on their own terms. So that's going on. Something else is going on, too. A lot of other things are going on because they're relentless. And the electorate in places like Downers Grove is vacuous and cowardly, and generally pathetic.
amends the Abused and Neglected Child Reporting Act, provides that abused child means a child whose parent or immediate family member or person responsible for the child's welfare, denies the child access to necessary medical care, including but not limited to primary care services, abortion services, gender-affirming services, amends the Consent by Minors to Health Care Services Act as well, specifies that consent to the performance of abortion services and gender-affirming services executed by a minor is not voidable because of such minority, meaning you don't need parental permission, provides that a health care professional rendering abortion services, gender-affirming services, will not incur civil or criminal liability for failure to obtain valid consent or failure to obtain valid consent if the healthcare professional relied in good faith on representations made by the minor. And there are penalties because this is amending two existing acts. So here's the translation of the legalese, as we've seen in other states. Your child wants an abortion. She gets an abortion. You stand in the way. You can be, well... You can have your child taken and be prosecuted by the state. A child, uh, your little boy wants to be a girl. I want to get surgery. I want to get puberty blockers. I want to get surgery. I want to, you stand in the way, in comes the state. Out goes your kid. 312-642-5600, turnkey.pro answer line. 64636-DA, turnkey.pro text line. I know, I know. When it happens to some family in Downers Grove or Naperville, you were the last to know, right? That family will have been the last to know. I can't believe what is going on in this state, right? As is the response to every other incursion by the state into family, the extraction, every other extraction by the state from your family, what? What is going on around here? Who's my representative? The law says what? And it will happen. You know why it will happen? Is because the culture is producing these results. Let's just hope it doesn't land on my doorstep, then I can ignore it. The University of California system is seeing a staggering increase in the number of students who identify as either trans or non-binary. According to data released in January, the number of undergraduate students identifying as non-binary across University of California system campuses rose by more than 2,000 individuals in the last four years. Mm -hmm. Even taking into account um, the shift in um, data collection, the number and percentage of students identifying as trans or non-binary increased significantly. The percentage of students identifying as gender non-conforming, non-binary, transgender has tripled, in fact. It's still a small percentage, but it was six one-hundredths of a percent in 2019. Now it's 1.9%. Most of the uh, students fell under the non-binary category, while trans men and women were identified as the smallest demographic, at 0.2%, two-tenths of a percent, and one-tenth of a percent. Boy, you wouldn't know it to, to consider how we uh, 
have to focus so much on this issue, you wouldn't know it represents such a small fraction of the population. Mm-hmm. Oh, and by the way, this doesn't work. What uh, the Anastava Murrays of the world propose. I'm not talking about taking your kids, taking people's kids away from them. That obviously doesn't work. I'm talking about the therapies. I, I want to do it to the best it's my kid. She's a uh, she's a boy. He's a girl. So on and so forth. Uh, would you rather have a live boy or a dead uh, a live girl or a dead boy, and vice versa, and all these all this other agitprop and uh, emotional intellectual blackmail and legal uh, threats? from these same parties. Uh, Last week, the American College of Pediatricians looked at 60 studies on the effectiveness of uh, sex changes on minors, so sort of a a meta-analysis. Looked at the results of 60 studies on the effectiveness of sex changes in minors. The uh, American College of Pediatricians concluded, quote, adolescents who have have a gender identity not congruent with our biological sex, have an increase of mental health issues, including depression and suicidal ideation. There are no long-term studies demonstrating benefits nor studies evaluating risks associated with the medical and surgical interventions provided to these adolescents. There is no long-term evidence that mental health concerns are decreased or alleviated after gender-affirming therapy. Because of the risks of social, medical, and surgical interventions, many European countries are now cautioning against these. Of course, we know this. We've talked about it. There's, um, you know, a professional association of pediatricians that looked at 60 studies, and there's their conclusion about these uh, procedures that Anna Staffa Murray, and she'll have plenty of support in the Illinois General Assembly that has been elected mainly by Chicagoland. Plenty of support. All these procedures that they want your child to be able to access without your permission. Not only without your permission, but as I said, importantly, we're at the next stage now. Are you keeping up? The next stage is, and you better be on board. Uh, not They don't need your permission, and we better not hear any opposition. Because who are you, mom and dad? Way to go, Downers Grove. Pretty pleased. Going well, right? Greg in LaGrange, you're on Chicago's Morning Answer. Hi, good morning, Dan. And this is just straight evil. The people that put these individuals in office should be ashamed. They don't even get up in the morning and do any kind of due diligence in who's running for office. They just look for an initial after their name, and they go along with the crowd, willing and complicit. I have a real hard time sometimes in my mind making a distinction between the population in this country and the population in Nazi Germany because they just willfully go along because they just don't want to know anything different. They don't want to be bothered. It's not going to come to me, so why do I need to worry about it? But yet I'm in with the crowd. I'm hip because I vote for the new way, new thinking, the new philosophy. And all the while, they're taking away the underpinnings of the most important things we have in civilization. God, family, culture, law and order. It's, you know, it's like the Thomas More 
asking for the man for all seasons when he's giving his son-in-law the, the business about, yeah, what are you going to do when you're a big attorney and you tear down all the laws and the devil turns around on you? Where are you going to run to? You're going to run to the law. Well, they're taking down the law, too. They're taking everything down. It's time to fight back. Thanks for the call, Greg. Well said. Wait, I, no, I know. I, Downers Grove strong. Hey, it has no home. No person is illegal. Kindness is everything. Yeah. It's going well. Dan and Amy, Chicago's Morning Answer. It's news, opinion, insight. This is Chicago's Morning Answer on AM560. The Answer. This is Chicago's Morning Answer with Dan Proft and Amy Jacobson on AM560. The Answer. Top of the morning, Dan and Amy will be back tomorrow. Uh, University of uh, Waterloo in Ontario uh, has uh, something like a caddy swim at Bushwood, 1 to 115, except uh, this is by race. Black Folex Swim, F-O-L-X. Folks, folks. I'm not, uh, you know, I try to keep up with the Orwellian nomenclature, but that one has me a bit baffled. I, I assume it means black people. Come and enjoy the pool with other black folks. This time, this dedicated time can be used for lengths or recreation in the six available lanes for fast, medium, recreational swimming. The diving well is open as well. Please follow the lane swim etiquette and all health regulations. Uh, there are also swim lessons from 11 a.m. to 12 p.m., first-come, first-served basis. These lessons will be taught by experienced black swimmers and instructors because, obviously, white people can't teach black people and black people can't teach white people. You know, you have to be segregated. Isn't that what the Civil Rights Movement was about? Uh, quoting, this is all from the University of Waterloo Athletics and Recreation page. This time, black folks swim is quote, dedicated to building a better relationship with water for the black community, unquote. Hmm. Um, yeah, well, I guess you'll have to take that in and decide how you want to react to that. It comes across as more than a bit patronizing to me, but uh, so does this, actually, piece by, a uh, piece in the Wall Street Journal recently by, Lawrence Krauss, some other course offerings. We'll just stay in Canada, but, I mean, you could... Well, actually, this isn't in Canada. I should... should I, we've got another example in, in Canada, but this is Rice University in the great state of Texas. Afrochemistry, the study of Black Lives Matter. Did you see what they did there? Uh, quote, students will apply chemical tools and analysis to understand black life in the United States... And students will implement African-American sensibilities to analyze chemistry. What? No prior knowledge of chemistry or African-American studies is required for engagement in this course. You could have stopped with no prior knowledge is required or will be conferred. 
the state of higher education. Uh, again, uh, this drum that we've been beating for the last several weeks because a couple of university Ivy League uh, university presidents self-immolated does not mean that things are changing in the academy. And there is a lot of evidence to suggest it's quite the contrary. For more on this, we're pleased to be joined by the aforementioned Lawrence Krauss, who's a theoretical physicist, president of the Origins Project Foundation, and author of The Edge of Knowledge, Unsolved Mysteries of the Cosmos. Lawrence Krauss, thanks for joining us. Appreciate it. It's nice to be with you, virtually at least. Uh, Well, um, I don't know. Shall we start with uh, black chemistry or uh, black swim time uh, at University of Waterloo? The, the the state of, obviously, higher education with this identitarian obsession. Yeah, I mean, the, the it, higher education is it's supposed to be about open questioning, free speech, open inquiry, uh, everything goes, and instead, in fact, unfortunately, what's happened is that it's been permeated by ideology. And and you've you've given two examples of that ideology: the notion that there's somehow the notion that there's systemic racism, which is never really proved, but the the claim that there is has resulted in something called anti-racism, which which appears on the surface to be a warmed-over version of racism, as you just pointed out. It's it's. It, it, it basically is, it suggests that people should be identified by the color of their skin or, in some cases, by their gender, not the quality of their character. It's, it, it, it's, uh, it, it's embarrassing, as you point out. And, uh, and, and the worst part of all of this, and, 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 and the example you gave of that, of that course is just one of a, a bunch of uh, academic programs that I described in my Wall Street Journal article, that... Uh, is that if you if you suggest if you criticize uh, the, the the claims in various ones of these articles, you're 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 basically claimed as a heretic, a racist, a sexist, or whatever. And 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 that's to me the real the real concern in academia is people's fear of speaking out against things that may or may not be nonsense. But it should be an open forum for students and faculty to be able to explore anything and be able to criticize anything, because otherwise, how do you make progress? Even after the, uh, what, what happened to Claudine Gay and um, uh, the, the, the University of Pennsylvania president as well, so the Harvard and Penn presidents, mm-hmm. Liz McGill, um, even, even have what happened to them, like the, the, they, they, they humiliated themselves in front of the nation and with their congressional testimony. And the response on campus is just to um, pretend like that didn't happen, or you know, I mean, I, I guess the, the I think the problem people have who um, are sort of coming from the same place that you and I are coming from, just the basics of human interaction. Uh, we're not to judge people by their color, the content of their character. I don't care what your color is. I don't care about your non-behavioral characteristics. We all need to get along and be. Uh, you know, collaborative and 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 respectful in this peaceful pluralistic society. If we want to keep it, so like basic stuff, like grade school stuff from generations ago, and now those are words that cannot be spoken. Like, what what does it take to penetrate? Uh, it's just you. People are just baffled by what they can't say and what is being uh, done uh, while they they're seemingly spectators. 
Well, you know, I mean, the point is, it's like kind of a, a frog in boiling water. How it, you know, it's sort of you heat it up, you heat it up, you heat it up, and you, you never notice what's happening. And what's happened is that a lot of this began with good intent um, um, 30, 40 years ago to try and ameliorate uh, disparities, you know, in, in women in science and, 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 and things like that. And, and so the intent is good. And then what happens is, What's really kind of happened is that the universities have built up this bureaucracy called diversity, equity, inclusion that is run by bureaucrats, not academics, that has basically uh, put down this almost totalitarian system that you have to pass loyalty oaths and, and, and uh, other things in order, to, in order to even be hired. And I think the problem with the testimony of the presidents wasn't so much, I mean, yeah, it was kind of ridiculous testimony, but the claim in some sense that they would tolerate free speech in the case of the Palestinians arguing that, that, that Israel should be destroyed as a state. The claim that they, that basically open discussion was, you know, they weren't going to condemn open discussion even if they hated the content of the discussion was ludicrous because those same universities were having, you know, rules about, about uh, what you could say about gender and, and how could, and, and, and claims about, you know, whether you're allowed to misgender someone. So, the the hypocrisy was what was so evident, I think, and and that's what's almost more disturbing than than their than their testimony themselves. Because look, I think the point of free speech is you you really the point of free speech is it is not to allow speech that you agree with, but to allow speech that you disagree with. That's the whole point. Right. And, and if universities were consistent in that regard, then that would be fine. But but they're not, and and it's it's basically. Um, what you're seeing is is an ideological fortress being built around uh, political correctness, around um, statements about gender and race, and about and and as you say, uh, and what's happening here is the notion that somehow there's such systemic racism that we have to segregate, uh, uh, in the case of Waterloo, blacks so that they can feel safe swimming. I mean that that that's patently ridiculous. Because if, in fact, of all the of all the places in in, in American uh, culture and Canadian culture that are probably the least racist, the least sexist, traditionally have been universities. Uh, they've been the most uh, uh, prom- they promoted on the whole the ideas of inclusion and equity. As I say, you have to um, if you look at higher. In fact, in Canada, it's even worse than the United States because they don't have the same. Um, constitutional liberties in that or, or they're guaranteed in Canada those same universities are able to now hire faculty and restrict the people who can apply for the positions to either be a most recent one this was this was an engineering and science of uh, the most prestigious chairs that Canada Research Council chairs were being restricted to people who were either uh, biracial or two gender or uh, 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 and in some cases female you can actually say that white males cannot apply for these positions. And that kind of, um, that, that hurts everyone, of course. The problem with that kind of notion is that um, it, it not only does it suggest that that's needed without ever demonstrating that, in fact, it's needed, when, when, it, when as far as I can see from an academia, it isn't needed. There's so many guarantees to try and have open, inclusive hiring. But it also puts a stigma on those people who are hired, ultimately. Because later on, people are going to say, "Well, they were they were hired in a in a in a, a competition which should be based on merit, but 60% of the population was restricted and not allowed to apply. How is that going to be later on in their careers?"
Well, I, looking I, forward to what, 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 what's happening. Yeah, I understand, but but you're right. They're not looking forward. They don't seem to be too concerned about that. They want what they want now, and I guess maybe that's one of the things that we don't understand. We we don't, we don't appreciate exactly it is what uh, exactly that which we're dealing. It, it's 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 not well intended people, perhaps. Perhaps it's no, it, people. It started, it started, well, well, let me let me finish. I yeah. think it started with it. Well, maybe, maybe. I mean, no, and then, and I think we all know where the road to, to the, the uh, uh, you know, the, the the road to hell is paved with those good intentions. But, but I mean, I, but I also think, I, I also think that we don't understand. There are people that that this is this is a power game, um, and so this yeah. is about um, setting up a system that confers benefits and imposes costs based on certain criteria. And they're they're executing this system and they will protect those who are part of the system. It just like any other, quote unquote, uh, good old boys network. So Claudine's gay, Claudine Gay's plagiarism is duplicative language or inadequate citations. It is not an academic offense. It gets redefined to be something that it isn't because there's this sort of idea. Well, there's a standard here, plagiarism. So we have to recast it as something else. But it, the point is, here's we will rally around the good old boys and girls in this new uh, system that we've created, and it is for us and by us. And 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 maybe that's what uh, people don't appreciate, that, no, everybody's trying to get to the same place. It's one of those things. And, no, not everybody is trying to get to the same place, I think. Well, I think I think you've hit a, lo- a, a lot of it. I, I wouldn't agree with everything you said, but I think the point is they have become the system. The universities are now literally have spent more money hiring this infrastructure, this bureaucracy called diversity, equity, inclusion, that has produced this this kind of totalitarian environment. It's not even the faculty. The faculty are afraid to speak up. In order to, as I say, in order to be hired in many universities, you have to produce a statement showing how you are actively, in your research, you right. have always actively been anti-racist. This, imagine a mathematician or a string theorist working on eleven dimensions, and their life—they, you know—they basically been working in their books, and they—but they couldn't get hired in, in University of California, Berkeley, on a search for biology professors. They had this loyalty uh, statement that you basically had to write about how you were actively anti-racist, and the diversity, equity, inclusion uh, bureaucracy read those statements before they allowed any of the applications to pass the biology department. Seventy-six percent of those people were excluded from consideration as professors of biology on the basis of this bureaucracy, this bureaucratic group that 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 filtered them out, not on the basis of their merit in 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 biology, but on the basis of their ideological adherence to the notions of this particular group. And universities across the country have spent hundreds of millions of dollars building up that infrastructure, and that's the problem because that infrastructure has become the system. And 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 of course what what academia should be based on is merit. And you're seeing you're seeing examples left, right, and center. And Claudine Gay may be one example. Well, I, you know, I'm not, I wasn't on the selection committee. But on, if you look externally, it doesn't appear as if her, her hire was, was based on merit. And that's, that's certainly the appearance of, of the situation. And, and that, when, you're, when you move away from that, you, you attack the very heart of academia, which is really based on, on, on the quality of your work and shouldn't be based on anything else. And if you're a biologist, it shouldn't, you shouldn't have to show that you agree with the ideological principles of some diversity, equity, inclusion officer who was brought up on critical race theory. 
Right. I mean, but but so, and that that's I, I think that's right. I think this is what it all boils down to. One group is pushing a system that is predicated on identity and the other is pushing a system that is predicated on merit. And the two are incongruous. They 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 cannot coexist. And so the choice needs to be presented, perhaps, in starker terms. And this is why so many men and women of the left in academia are on the outside looking in, because uh, they may be of the left, but they came up in a different environment. They believe different things about uh, what the academy should be, as you were describing. And so they're frozen out, too. I mean, these this this identity group are neo-Jacobins. They they will kill their own as necessary, if you know what I mean. Yeah, no, and that's happening. And you're right. And my politics have traditionally been, over time, one would say, I think, on the left. Um, yet I write in the Wall Street Journal because that's the place where I can talk about these things. And, and I think um, you're seeing classical liberalism, which is what most people of my generation who are sort of leaning on the left are based on. They're classical principles, the Enlightenment and liberal, liberal thought, open, open free speech, those um, those classical liberals are 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 not uh, are not being associated with what's happening now at the center of universities, and the problem is itself perpetuating. Because if if these organizations restrict the hiring to people who have already bought into right. the ideological inheritance, then what you see, of course, is who are they going to hire, and 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 that's the real concern. And so you do you do see that that the notion of classical liberalism is not what you would cannot be associated with liberal, what you might call liberal arts universities around the country right now. And so that's, w- a real, that's a real scary thing. No, there's, there's no question about that. That's a dynamic. And they can't be embarrassed either, too. I know you wrote about the Sokol affair we had more recently, that, uh, that sort of uh, 2.0 version with Bogosian and Lindsay. Uh, and, but it, it doesn't matter. It, they can, cannot be humiliated. They cannot be shamed. They just they march on. And so my question is, from, from where does the revolt come? How does this get um, resized on campus? Well, that is the... the I used to say $64,000 question, but $64,000 isn't so much anymore. The, uh, it, it, one hoped, many of us thought that this affair of, say, Claudine Gay would put in stark contrast the hypocrisy that, that is happening at universities, that, that, that universe, this university president says, yeah, it's okay to say you're going to kill all Jews, but, but you better not have a, a meeting where you're, when you're going to say that sex is binary. You better, and, and, and so we thought that would be, it might be a defining moment. It, it's, it, it certainly awakened a lot of people. But I think ultimately what's going to have to happen is you're going to have to see this internal, enough faculty are going to have to be fed up that they start to, that they start to en masse um, revolt against this situation. And individual faculty are mostly afraid. They just keep their heads under the radar and try and do their work. And it, it's, it's hard to know where it's going to happen, where it's going to go, unless there are more episodes like this that expose that bureaucracy, embarrass universities, and potentially, as you're seeing in the case of Harvard and a few other universities, major donors begin to begin to question that. And that's another that's another situation when when major donors begin to say, um, uh, "We have a problem with this." You're going to see universities start to act, and I think that's part of the reason universities have jumped on this social justice bandwagon. Because by virtue signaling, by saying words that sound good, diversity, equity, inclusion, they sound like good words, they could try and um, virtue signal and appear to be in front of the, you know, of, 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 the, of the movement and try and court students and parents 
ultimately when they're embarrassing themselves and students stop applying and donors stop giving money, then you'll see, I think, universities begin to respond. Lawrence Krauss, theoretical physicist, president of the Origins Project Foundation, author of The Edge of Knowledge, Unsolved Mysteries of the Cosmos. Professor Krauss, thanks for joining us. Appreciate it. Thanks. You take care. Good day. You too. And he joined us on the turnkey.pro answer line. The stories you need to know to start your day. This is Chicago's Morning Answer on AM 560, The Answer. Only the biggest stories, only the biggest guests, and only the biggest opinions. This is AM 560, The Answer. Top of the morning, Dan and uh, Amy is back tomorrow. Uh, last year, Governor Ron DeSantis signed uh, legislation into a law that's required, among other things, out-of-state driver's licenses given to illegal immigrants be invalidated, required hospitals in Florida to quantify uncompensated care given to people in this country illegally, and compel lawyers with at least 25 employees to use E-Verify to check new hires' legal status before hiring them. Uh, you may remember the hue and cry last uh, spring about this uh, was going to not only was it uh, inhumane and uh, un-American and xenophobic and all of those other things it uh, also was going to decimate Florida's economy always interesting when the left is worried about the prospects for someone they otherwise disagree with Tucker Carlson is going to ruin his credibility by uh, uh, sitting down with Vlad Putin okay well isn't that what you want Florida is going to decimate its economy if Ron DeSantis signs this law. Well, isn't that what you want, to stick it to DeSantis and all those red state denizens? Yeah. Well, it turns out that uh, those predictions, not exactly on the money. Surprise, surprise. For more on this, please be joined by Dave Seminera, former diplomat, author of Footsteps of Federer and Mad Travelers, a tale of wanderlust, greed, and the quest to reach the ends of the earth. Dave, thanks for joining us again. Appreciate it. Dan, thanks for having me. So uh, Florida was really going to hamstring itself. The uh, the economic vitality of Florida, much talked about under Governor DeSantis, that was going to go away with this legislation codified into law. And um, what's occurred in the last uh, almost a year instead? The economy has continued to grow. Uh, surprisingly, you know, we were told there was going to be a huge worker shortage here. Some people were even predicting there to be food shortages. I think that um, that some liberals were hoping there'd be food shortages here in um, in Florida. It would not have been fun for them. That did not transpire. Um, surprisingly, the unemployment rate even went up slightly. Right, we were supposed to have this, you know, huge shortage of workers and stuff. That didn't happen. Prices were supposed to go up. Prices were supposed to skyrocket, specifically for food. That did not happen. Even before the law went into effect in July of last year. We were told that the media hyped this truckers boycott hugely. They were they were really into this thing. There were probably, I don't know, in reality, maybe a dozen truckers somewhere online who were saying, oh, we're going to organize this massive boycott when this law goes into effect. We are not going to bring any groceries or products or essential medicines or things like that to the state of Florida. That did not materialize at all. In, in essence, everything they predicted, essentially the opposite happened. In the third quarter of last year after the law went into effect, I think our our GDP growth rate as a state was the seventh best in the country. Um, so things are basically just fine. I think, the, in essence, the only thing wrong with the law is that it didn't go far enough. 
And we still have a lot of illegal immigrants working here in Florida because, as you just pointed out, it only applied – the E-Verify uh, uh, portion of it only applied to new hires, and it only applied to uh, companies that have 25 employees or more. So even here in Florida where we have lots of Republicans, there's still plenty of Republicans around who are beholden to business interests. And if you want to get something legislation passed here, you can't make it quite that tough, can you? No, and I also I, – I know this is uh... – uh, particular um, uh, focus of the big guys right now per his pre-Super Bowl message. But I haven't noticed that uh, the Publix and grocery stores, um, the shrinkflation that's supposedly afflicting the Western world, too, um, as the as big grocery is really sticking it to the little guy, according to what Joe Biden was telling us. Yeah, I mean, really, whenever immigration reform is proposed, in Congress, immediately the left defaults to food and agriculture. It's their it's their stagnant. Who will pick the crops? You know, even George W. Bush. I don't know if you remember this, but who will pick the cotton? He said in a famous speech. I think I don't know if it was in Davos or in Dubai or someplace like right. that. Right. Yeah. He gave a famous "Who will pick the cotton?" speech, George W. Bush. And you hear this all the time, but it's I mean it's it's entirely fraudulent because you know farmers have this visa called the H two A visa, which unlike most of the other guest worker visas is numerically unlimited. <laughs> So they have the ability to bring in as many foreign guest workers as they want legally. However, that program comes with a lot of oversight that they do not like. They need to provide accommodation. They need to have government bureaucrats you know, inspecting their facilities, inspecting their dormitories, and so on and so forth. And they have to meet prevailing wages and so on and so forth. And they don't like that. So you know, it's, it's really a false argument, but that's the one that the left relies on. Right. No, that's a good point. I mean, one, it also speaks to the the. This isn't dogmatic, but you can think through these things and 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 make determinations in terms of the sort of immigration policies that make sense and are in America's interest, and the sort of you know open borders policies that don't. You're able. People can distinguish between these two things. Um, that's number one. In in addition to that, um, you know. It, it also just uh, speaks to the, 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 the larger problem of having uh, a focused conversation on this because you get these um, misdirection plays that are thrown out is, like you say, who will pick the cotton or or um, uh, what about, the, you know, the farmers, they produce the food and stuff. And it turns out that, number one, that's already being accommodated, actually. It's not even something that it's not even a problem that we have to address, per se. It's actually being accommodated. And number two, to the extent that there needs to be tweaks, happy to have that conversation. But we're not having any conversation about any tweaks of programs that are going along basically okay when we have this sucking chest wound over here that nobody wants to discuss. No, exactly. It'll be interesting, too, to see what happens, you know, in the next several months of the campaign, too, because we had this bill that came out in the Senate, this immigration, the border bill. You know, 370 pages worth of a lot of details that I chose not to immerse myself in. I immersed myself in a bit of it, but I didn't go through the entire thing. But, you know, we'll just have to see what happens. I think, though, that E-Verify is something that's very popular with Americans. And I think, you know, even an increasing number of independents and Democrats. And so I don't think this thing can be stopped. I think that even even the left now is starting to realize that they're going to lose this election if they don't move quickly to the right on immigration. I think Biden has finally gotten that that message. I mean, of course, he's not going to move anywhere near in the direction we would like him to. But you do see them inching towards the center. I was amazed that they were even willing to 
to take on asylum and to make it tougher to to claim your uh, to claim asylum in that in that Senate border deal. Not well, that they, it was a good one, but it right. was something. It's like okay, all right, there's something here. Well, they they have to to move uh, gingerly because um, well, let's let's turn it over to Chris Murphy, the senator from Connecticut. He was on MSNBC with uh, Rachel Maddow, doppelganger Chris Hayes, and he conceded something that you're not supposed to say out loud. The negotiation didn't have a path to citizenship. It was entirely on their terms in order to get Ukraine funded, right? Well, I mean, Chris, that's been a failed play for 20 years. So you are right that that has been the Democratic strategy for 30 years, maybe. uh, And it has failed to deliver for the people we care about most, the undocumented Americans that are in this country. The people we care about most, Dave undocumented Americans. Well, if they're undocumented, then they're not Americans. But okay, the people we care about most. And also, I mean, that's the real, uh, obviously, takeaway. The people we care about most are the people here illegally, not American citizens. But the other part of it, too, that's uh, that's been our approach for 30 years. Everything that we've conceded and we've tried to concede as little as possible in terms of border security has been to try to get as many people um, essentially on the voter rolls as possible. Dan, you know, it's, it's a really interesting problem. I mean, it's such a global, it is the, it is the, you know, arguably the biggest global problem, not just for the United States, but for every relatively wealthy country all around the world. You know, I like to travel. Over the Christmas holidays, we were in the Caribbean. We went to a few islands, for example, that are being overrun also by Venezuelan migrants. This isn't just an issue for the U.S., right? right. This is an issue in places like Aruba, in places like St. Kitts. In places all over the world, any country that's reasonably worth living in is having this problem right now. And the left here, uh, you know, they're becoming increasingly isolated because I think what, what you know, I think what Rui Teixeira calls normie voters, normie Democrat and Democrats, like not not the far left, the, the squad type people, but just ordinary people who are not completely insane, but who tend to vote Democrat, even they want a secure border. So I think that this is something the entire world is facing right now. And it's it's probably the one, you know, it is the, really the one, number one slam dunk issue for Republicans. And it's something we're going to have to focus on a lot this year. He is Dave Seminar, a former diplomat, author of Footsteps of Federer and Mad Travelers, A Tale of Wanderlust, Greed, and the Quest to Reach the Ends of the Earth. Dave, thanks as always. Appreciate it. Nice talking to you. You, you too. And uh, Dave joined us on the Turnkey.pro answer line. Listen to Dan and Amy on your smartphone. Download the AM560 mobile app today at 560theanswer.com slash mobile. Nice uh, cover your ass story in the uh, Tribune over the weekend about uh, families uh, being ripped apart with the end of the tax scholarship program and the closure of uh, Catholic schools. Uh, half a dozen in the state, more to come. St. Francis of Rome, St. Adillo in Berwyn, we've told you, Notre Dame Academy in Belleville, downstate St. Anna, Nashville, St. Paul the Apostle and St. Jude in Joliet. Uh, they're going to co- consolidate into a single school. Uh, Greg Richmond, who's the head of schools for the Archdiocese. It's the schools who serve the greatest number of low-income students who are now going to get the biggest hit. Not a single middle-income or upper-income family lost a scholarship because they're not eligible for them. Only low-income families had the rug pulled out from under them. Yeah, well, uh, you saw it coming, and maybe you and your boss there at Cardinal Soup should have done something about it.
should have uh, expended all the political capital that you had, should have made this a hill to die on, maybe should have issued a clarion call to big shoulders and all these other sort of passive participants in promoting school choice when asked, as opposed to a leading a charge. Maybe you should have imposed a cost in all the assembled uh, strategic allies in the school choice movement should have imposed a cost on Governor Jelly Belly and that street criminal Chris Welch, the speaker. But you didn't do any of that now. You didn't do anything that did any of that then, did you now? And so here we go. Meanwhile, uh, billions for people in this country, in, in, in this state in particular, in the state in this country illegally. Billions. Blank checks. That's where it's at in Illinois. Listen to Dan and Amy on your smartphone. Download the AM560 mobile app today at 560theanswer.com slash mobile. Thanks for listening to Chicago's Morning Answer podcast sponsored by Signature Bank. Signature Bank takes pride in helping customers grow their business and provide unmatched banking expertise, custom financial solutions, and the industry's best technology. So whether you're a business looking for a deposit relationship or needs a ready source of financing, Signature Bank is the right bank for you. Call today at 773-467-5600 to hear how Signature Bank can help your business grow and thrive. Member FDIC, Equal Housing Lender.